for over 130 years, McCormick has helped you make mom's lasagna to keep her secret recipe alive. Take over taco night, no matter how chaotic your day is. Conquer the bake sale, even if you get to it last minute. And craft the perfect Sunday brunch when it's not even Sunday. Because with McCormick by your side, it's going to be great. Hey, this is DeRay, and welcome to Pod Save the People. Now, this is a jam-packed episode. Interview with uh, John Keane, the former Secretary of Education. Kelly Ward, who's leading redistricting work around the country. Uh, also, Andy Slavitt comes back to give us an update on what's happening with healthcare. And then the news includes Brittany, Sam, and Clint, and me at uh, this time. Before we uh, get into this week's episode, I'll just say one word of advice. Is that remember that if you are expecting your circumstances to change and you are fighting for your circumstances to change, remember that that often starts uh, with changing you. Is as we fight for this world to be a place that's more equitable and just, that that often requires us to change the way that we think about the world. It changes either the way we prepare for the world, it changes uh, the way that we imagine, the way that we interact. That so much of the change that we want to see in the world starts with us. And be open to that. That I know some people who want the world to change but don't want to be changed themselves. And that's just not how this works. Without further ado, let's jump into this week's episode. Now, we just have Andy Slavitt, a former head of Obamacare, back to give us an update about what's happening with healthcare. Andy, always good to have you back uh, on the pod. I wish that you were here talking about great news in healthcare, but uh, can you talk about the recent developments now that the CBO has scored the latest piece of legislation? The last time we spoke, it was still a secret. Uh, so what do we know today that we didn't know last week? Sure. Well, just for kicks, Dere, why not? Let's, let's, let's think like Republicans. And, you know, I'm sure there are plenty of Republicans listening to your show. But right now, it's Repo- the ball is in their court. So let, I think it's most useful to think about what does the CBO score mean to them? Make sense? Uh, sure, yeah. You're the expert. Okay. So from their perspective, I mean, look, Democrats, um, what we want is pretty simple. We want more people to be covered. Uh, we want people to have access to insurance. We don't want people to go bankrupt. That, that's generally, if you talk to a Democrat, what they're after. Republicans, uh, they want something different. And I think some of the important disconnect is here. They want health care to cost less. They, they want it not to be such a burden on the federal budget. Uh, and, you know, and I think part of that is that they want to they want to reduce taxes. And, and some of that is just how they're wired. But they want it to cost less to the government. They want it to cost less to the government. And they want to bring down the cost of insurance in general. Uh, that, that's what they talk about. Now, they the way they do that sometimes is by ma- making insurance cover less. So we might argue it's not really bringing down the cost. And I think we'd be right about that. But, but put that aside, they, they, want, they just assume they want things to cost less. We want more people to be covered. The interesting thing about the CBO report is it fails at both. It talks about 22 <laughs> wow. million people who are going to lose coverage, which is virtually spot on with what the House said. But also, it says that because of the way the bill is structured, People's deductibles will go from about $3,000 to over $6,000. And many people on top of that will pay a lot more. And they use an example that if somebody wanted to pay the same amount of premium under Obamacare and Trump care, under Obamacare, 
they'd get a policy that covers 60% of their needs, I mean, 90% of their needs, and under Trump care, they'd get a policy that only covers 60% of their needs. So this is a bill, according to the CBO, that really failed both the Democrat and the Republican test. Now, what's a, can you, what, is a, what is a deductible and what's a premium? What is a deductible and what is a premium? Excellent questions, as always. You always bring me back to make sure I answer the important questions first. I'm just trying to understand. Premium is the amount of money that you pay every month uh, out of your pocket to buy insurance. That's what your premium is. A deductible is the amount of money that once you buy your policy that you have to spend before the policy kicks in. So if you have a $5,000 deductible, that means the first $5,000 of medical expenses, you got to pay before your insurance even pays anything. So when you have deductibles doubling, what that really means is the value of your policy is a lot, lot less. Got it. Now, now that you've defined deductible and premium, can you just explain one more time what, what the latest uh, Senate version will do to deductibles and premiums? Sure. What it, what it says, I think this is a, this is the most helpful thing that, to think about it, is for an individual that has an Obamacare policy, for their premium, that policy will cover 90% of their needs. And for that same premium, a Trump care policy will only cover 60% of their needs. So you either have to pay more or you get a lot less. And that's what I say violates what Republicans want to accomplish uh, with with their with their bill, and therefore it fails both tests. Okay, let me repeat that back to you so I can make sure I get it. So you're saying so the premium, the amount that I pay every month to be covered for insurance, that that under Obamacare just covers way more. So like that, my monthly whatever, a hundred dollars, two hundred dollars, like that's covering a whole range of services in. In the Trump care, the latest Senate version, they're just scaling back how much is covered. Is that right? That's exactly right. And it gets better and better because it also says that for half the population in the country, the policies will now have caps on how much the policy will pay, meaning that if you exceed a certain amount of claims, a certain amount of medical expenses, the policy will stop paying. And that certain services will not be required to be covered, like mental health, like maternity coverage. So it's a worse deal all the way around. And, uh, and is there argument that this is just saving money? Is that, is that, is that why they're willing to sacrifice people's health? Wait, I just got Fox News uh, where I was having a debate with uh, an economist who is a Republican. And uh, the only argument he could make was that the CBO just had to be wrong. And the Fox News anchor uh, seemed to be kind of going down that line of thinking. That's wild. Well, uh, what can people do, Andy? Well, yeah, and I would say that's like if you have if anybody out there has kids or if we remember when we were in grade school, you get your grades from the teacher and you come home and tell your parents it's not really a D. It's really an A. The teacher was wrong. That, that's what that's what that is. Right. <laughs> what can people do? So right now, what can we do? What can we do is. We have just a couple of days left because the Senate is insisting on having their vote this week. And so it's really, really, really important that people are reaching out. And I will, I will talk again about the best ways to reach out. If you're in D.C., there's a lot of events. Uh, if you're not in D.C., 
that you have a Republican senator, you have to tell them just how devastating this score is and what it means and even relate your own story. If you don't have a Republican senator, but you have a Republican governor, that counts too, because Republican senators all talk to one another and they talk to those senators. And they're very powerful. In fact, they're all going to be, many of the Republican governors are going to be at the White House tomorrow talking about this. And finally, if, if you live in a place that just has Democrats, you've got to tell those Democrats to make sure every time they're on the floor, they're talking about health care nonstop. No matter what question they get asked, they're talking about health care. And what about people with Democratic governors? Well, Democratic governors, I think, are, I don't think you, if you've got a Democratic governor and you've got two Democratic senators, I think you've got, you've got to just have, you just should go right to your senators. Uh, because they're the ones that are on the floor and they're the ones that are the, the uh, people are going to need to hear from. Cool. Well, we will have you back uh, as long as this continues to be a saga. Is there, do we think that this is going to pass? Do we uh, think that this might fail this week if it goes to a vote? Well, Dre, are you a pro sports fan? I don't know much about sports, sadly. I'm trying to think of, I'm trying to use a sports analogy, but, uh, but, 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 but I'll, I'll try this because we we all know football. I'm not, I'm not the biggest football fan either. But there's there's certain quarterbacks. Um, uh, Tom Brady would be a good example. Who, if it's the fourth quarter and they have the football, even if they've got a lot of yards to go, you never count them out. Mitch McConnell, who is a Senate Majority Leader, is like Tom Brady. He's got a lot of challenges. He's got a lot of people that are that are uh, very uncomfortable with this bill. The CBO score being a major reason. But he's really, really good at what he does. He is famous for closing these deals. And what he will do is he will go in the back room and spend money and try to win people over. So I think he's got a tough challenge because it's a terrible bill. But I would, I would never count him out. And I might even give him the advantage just given that you know, he's got the home field advantage to keep that analogy going. Got it. That analogy makes sense. Uh, thank you, Andy. And uh, keep us posted. Thanks, Ray. Don't go anywhere. More Politics of the People is coming. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondery's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states and Canada where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, the Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery+. Plus. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Now, what's the first thing that you'd do if you had a ton of extra time in a day? Maybe I'd take a nap, go for a run, talk to some friends. Now, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. But the question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? Now, the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and to make it a priority. 
Therapy can help you find what matters to you, help you process the world around you, help you think through the most important things, how you spend your time, where you spend your energy, especially your emotional energy. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com people today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash people. It's the first time we've ever had four people on the news. And today it's Clint Smith III, the poet and PhD student, Brittany Bagnett, former member of the Ferguson Commission and former appointee by President Obama to the 21st Century Task Force on Policing, and then Samuel Sinyangwe, and most incredible data scientist you know. It's uh, great, to, great to have everybody here. It is. Clint has such a dad voice now. Like, Clint, the last time I, I saw you and talked to you was right before you were a dad, and now your voice has totally changed. I mean, I'm I'm the most domesticated man under 30 years old that you you'll ever meet. So I was <laughs> right before I got on this call, I was uh, sitting on the porch drinking lemonade while my son, you know, spit up on my chest, and and I was like, this is this is fatherhood right here. And so uh, that's so right. yeah, that's the the intonation shift in in my voice is, is reflective of all the uh, all the spit up I've had to clean off of my shirt and the, <laughs> the diapers I've had to change, I but. Love it. It is. It is, and continues to be uh, best thing. Best thing I've ever done. How old is he today? He is today. He is about to be a month old, which is wild. Uh, I met. Uh, uh, we went and met uh, Van Newkirk five fifth on Twitter. We went and um, had brunch with he and his wife and their new baby, and we put our babies together. Van's baby is about three months old now, and who, he just looks like a sumo wrestler compared to my child. Now he just—they grow so quickly. Um, and he's just the most adorable little boy. So shout out to shout out to Van and shout out to uh, Van's son and, and wife. And you know we are slowly creating the the world's best baby soccer team. Just wait on it. <laughs> I love it. And Sam, you're not at home, are you? Yep, Minneapolis. Have you ever been to one of the lakes in Minneapolis? No, this is the first time I'm here where like the weather is nice. Usually it's cold and I don't go outside, so I still have to explore. Uh, Clint, take us away. All right. Well, as a resident academic here, uh, I shared a, a piece of um, an academic paper last week, and I thought I'd keep it going this week. Uh, so I walked into my barber shop a few days ago, and the, part of the conversation that was happening was uh, based in one of the guys who was in there having been formerly incarcerated. Uh, and I was thinking a lot about what it meant for formerly incarcerated folks to find work and how this barber shop was providing an opportunity that a lot of formerly incarcerated people don't get to experience because there's such profound discrimination in the workplace against those who've been in prison before. And I kept going back to this study, uh, thinking about the study by Diva Pager. Uh, it's a, over a decade old, but still super relevant. So essentially, uh, Diva Pager, who's a researcher at Harvard, she uh, did an experiment in which uh, people, she matched these individuals and sent resumes out uh, to different employers. And the only difference between the two uh, between the resumes was that one person had a criminal record and one person didn't. And so what she found was that uh, 34% of whites without a criminal record received callbacks and 17% of whites with criminal records did. So that cut the callbacks in about half. Um, and then with blacks, she found that 
14% without criminal records received callbacks, and 5% of those with criminal records did. And so that cut it by about two-thirds. So essentially, the craziest thing is that white people without, or excuse me, white people with a criminal record were still more likely to get a callback for an interview than a black person without a criminal record. And this has become a sort of seminal study in sociology, and I think is really illuminative and really reflective of uh, a lot of issues that continue to create uh, stratification um, of inequality for for black folks in particular, um, because of the fact that like even when you have not been in prison, you still are less likely to get an interview from so many different employers um, as compared to your your white counterparts who have been in prison before. Wow. So so this is really fascinating, and I think it's uh, it's important in the context of this conversation about progressivism. And, you know, having a jobs program, I remember in the 2016 campaign, you know, Bernie was all about this jobs program. And, you know, a lot of folks were saying, you know, the jobs program is the solution for, you know, black youth who have high levels of unemployment. And my response was always that, you know, a jobs program alone is not the answer if you are not paying attention to the racial inequity and how those jobs are distributed. And you can throw money at a jobs program, but at the end of the day, what you're really doing is transferring money to white men who have fewer qualifications for those jobs than black folks. Uh, Even, you know, as you said, Clint, with a criminal record, they're more likely to get those jobs than black folks are. So if we don't pay attention to race, in many ways, we might actually be exacerbating some of the inequities through progressive policy. Clint, was the study done on men only, or did it include black women as well? Uh, So I believe this study was done specifically with uh, men. Got you. I mean, clearly it's it's critically important, um, and the analysis that you just provided illuminates why. I think it would be interesting to see an extension of this conversation around black women. We often don't discuss the um, the destruction to black families when black women are incarcerated, um, black women that are often breadwinners, black women um, that are often in a position to care for multiple members of the family, right? Aging elders, young people, children. Um, and given that there is already um, a wage gap for not just women, but black women in particular, because as I hope everyone listening remembers, um, this idea that women make 76 cents on to every man's dollar is true for white women only. Uh, women of color all make uh, varying amounts less than that. It would be interesting to see how that impacts uh, black women in particular, um, given that that wage gap already exists. Yeah, it's interesting to, like Sam, you talked about what it means to have a jobs program and not actually focus on equity, right? And Clint uh, highlighting that, like, regardless of what people do, they're still impacted by this, right? Like, people who had no criminal record, hadn't done anything, were still negatively impacted. And Brittany, you're right about uh, making sure that we account for black women in this. I'm also reminded, and it makes me think about how this probably plays out in other sectors too, like not just with sort of job applications, but thinking about how does bias, whether implicit or explicit, like uh, go across um, across industries and across sort of businesses. And it makes me think about, Clint, what you brought up last week about uh, the study around how when white people were shown mugshots of uh, Black people, they were they were more likely to sign a petition for draconian laws than otherwise. Uh, So I'm interested to think about how this plays out across sectors. 
Oh, definitely. And I think that Brittany bringing up the point about black women is really essential because oftentimes uh, women and especially black women are left out of this conversation, but uh, black women are amongst the highest and most the fastest growing um, population of folks who are incarcerated at the moment. And so it's essential that in any sort of analysis, I mean, the study was done in 2003, but in, in our sort of uh, contemporary analysis and discussion around this, that we not, uh, not forget to leave that out. Well, I think I'm up. Um, so my piece of news is once again related to education. Many of you re- may remember broadening conversations around for-profit schools over the last few years. It was something that the Obama administration really took on as more and more stories were coming out of students who essentially were left stranded upon graduation, who were um, lured into the school's recruitment campaign by being promised good-paying jobs um, coming directly out of quick programs um, at for-profit schools and essentially not only not finding finding employment, but then being up to their eyeballs in debt and having no way to pay for it. Um, the Obama administration, along with many others, found these to be very predatory practices. And so the administration, the last administration, overhauled regulations uh, essentially to make it easier to forgive those loans for students who were unable to find employment directly after um, directly after graduation and to prevent future abuses by these schools. These uh, new rules and regulations were supposed to go into effect on July 1st. According to the current Department of Education, those rules are suspended indefinitely, supposedly to write new ones, um, but there is no indication as to when those will be written. One of the things that um, that, that suspension halted was um, a way that uh, would have limited uh, students borrowing by looking at their potential outcomes. So essentially saying, depending on what you might realistically be able to earn after graduation, we will limit how much you're able to borrow so that you do not go into uh, insurmountable debt by the time you come out. Um, obviously, this was critical because for-profit schools were over-promising and under-delivering. And so now a lot of those students that were, are, are currently stranded or have the prospect to be stranded after graduation um, have no recourse. This is especially troubling, I think, for two reasons, though. One, obviously, um, Mr. Trump uh, paid $25 million to settle a class action lawsuit um, for fraud after closing his own for-profit school, Trump University. Uh, and you'll probably remember from Secretary DeVos' confirmation hearings that she personally has several investments that are tied to the for-profit school industry. You can imagine that the for-profit school industry opposed uh, the Obama administration regulations, and they're happy to see these things being halted. Um, and then when you think about the fact that, that the Department of uh, uh, Civil Rights in Ed is being scaled back, uh, these students then have no place to put those complaints uh, and no guarantee that they'll actually be looked at. So very troublesome things coming out of, of the department still. Um, and, and I remain worried, especially as we have this conversation about employment and jobs for all people, especially marginalized people, what it means when um, access to the quality work uh, continues to be taken away. So I think this conversation around uh, for-profit education is really important. And I remember when I first, when a lot of this was first in the news, and especially around um, the conversations and the closing of ITT Tech and things like that, uh, I remember I read that up to 90% of the revenue for uh, for for-profit colleges and universities comes from federal student grants and loans, which is an extraordinary 
number uh, and is, is unique as compared to any of their higher education counterparts. And and I think that part of what we have to understand about that number is that the, that makes it so that these universities specifically target uh, veterans, they specifically target poor folks, they specifically target folks on the margins who are the beneficiaries of these federal student grants and loans because of their socioeconomic standing and whatnot. And so, so part of what we what we have to sort of uh, think about and reconcile is, is this idea that uh, the for-profit prison, or excuse me, not the for-profit prison, the for-profit uh, education industry is sort of presents itself as solving this or filling this gap for so many folks who are on the margins and so many folks who aren't traditional students, who aren't attending traditional four-year universities, which is important. And I think providing alternative education opportunities for folks who, who are unable to um, have the traditional four-year experience is essential, uh, but they're a lot more insidious in the way that they go about it. They don't actually have the best interests of the students at heart. And as Brittany alluded to, you know, the, the, um, the rates of student debt are far higher at uh, these universities. The rate of the of um, defaulting on your credit is far higher at these universities. And so, in these in this conversation, I always want to make sure that we're saying it's imp- not you know it's important for everyone to have the opportunity to uh, have a non traditional higher education experience if, if they have other uh, a scenario that demands that. But um, so often, for profit universities fail to. Uh, provide students with the the things that they need to create any sort of upward economic mobility in their lives. Yeah, and it's one of these situations where, you know, you had a situation under the Obama administration where, you know, the for-profit education industry had had so many problems, and there was this feeling that the federal government under Obama was trying to do something about it. You know, however effective that was, it seemed like they they were taking steps and, and using regulations to address this issue. And now it's sort of like the reverse. You not only have the government pulling back on efforts to address these issues, but even bringing in people like, you know, Betsy DeVos and others who, you know, seem committed to actually exacerbating the problem or, um, you know, making things even worse uh, and allowing for, you know, this industry to continue to, to profit off the backs of the most marginalized communities. And I think that is characteristic of what this administration has done in so many other domains as well. Yeah, it is, Clint. I didn't know um, until you brought it up and I, that so much of the money that for-profit schools uh, get from the federal government, and it's interesting because they are essentially publicly funded um, in so many ways, but but are not publicly accountable, that they're accountable to investors and shareholders, which is like a, a whole different sort of margin of what profit means. And I also didn't know that about 25% of the total uh, amount of federal dollars that goes to colleges and universities um, goes to for-profit schools and only 10% of all college students go to for-profit schools. So there seems to be like the wrong incentive sort of scheme set up here uh, too, when we think about this. Yeah, I couldn't agree with all that's been said more. Um, absolutely, Clint, there has to be non-traditional pathways to gainful employment and a strong family life um, that, that are available to all people. Um, but as Sam alluded to, this is emblematic of this administration and not just in the ways in which marginalized people and their futures will be sacrificed, but the ways in which our futures will be sacrificed to the benefit of the wealthy, right? That this is the same kind of 
mindset that we are seeing craft uh, the uh, or behind the crafting of the, um, the both of the House and the Senate GOP health care bills um, and in so many other ways, rules and regulations, laws that are being written, executive orders that are being passed. There is a direct beneficiary and there is a um, there's always a clear loser and the clear loser ends up being the, the same group of people every single time. Now, I'm going to bring two things to talk about. One is like a, a piece of news and then one is just a, an update that we should talk about. Uh, the first is I was fascinated to learn that adoptions um, in America are declining. And to give a little bit of context is that foster care adoptions have leveled off around 50,000 kids adopted annually. And that leveled off a couple years ago uh, after steadily declining um, between 2005 and 2012. But what is interesting is that in 2015, the most recent year for which statistics are available, 428,000 children were in foster care compared with about 397,000 in 2012. So there's a, an increase, a big increase happening. I didn't know, and I read this article in The Economist about the decline, and that they are attributing the rise in the opioid epidemic to one of the reasons that there is there are more kids who need foster care, that parents, uh, the misuse of drugs and, and painkillers and heroin specifically, have become the second most common cause of a child's removal from parental care. The number one cause is neglect, uh, which is often exacerbated by drug use. And it's an interesting, you know, we talk about the opioid epidemic a lot in um, in sort of the public, but you don't hear about the impact on families. And I had just not made that connection about what's happening with foster care and adoption. Foster care is definitely one of those issues that, again, one has to sort of recognize the the nuances of it. I think that when I think of foster care, I think of the, the thousands of, of families and, and parents who offer their homes to these young people um, when they don't have to and, and how, how so many of them are doing such important work to care for uh, for so many young people that have had parents um, that have been taken away from their parents for a variety of reasons. And I think alongside that, we have to hold a recognition that has been proven time to time again by the social science that foster care uh, is actually not a good situation for young people to be in, that it creates a lot of instability in their lives. And that leads to difficulty in school. That leads to uh, more likelihood of dropping out that leads to more likelihood of engaging in the um, uh, criminal, engaging in criminal activities and things like that. And so I think, it, you know, Matt Desmond writes a lot about uh, the instability that young people experience from eviction uh, in his, his book this past year that came out that won the Pulitzer. But, you know, if we're thinking about foster care, it's a sort of similar instability because oftentimes young people are moved from foster care center to foster care center to foster care center to foster care center. To foster care center. Um, and we've all heard stories about young folks who have spent, you know, been at a different school or a different home um, and been moved, you know, six, seven, eight times in, in a single year. And so I think that uh, we can both deeply appreciate the work that foster parents are doing and recognize that uh, we should be trying to create steps that make the foster care system uh, more stable, uh, but also so that, you know, hopefully more young people are uh, finding families or or ideally that we're creating the social infrastructure so that so many of the young people who are being taken away from their families aren't taken away in the first place because their parents have access to good health care, because their parents aren't being incarcerated because their parents uh, have access to jobs and all of those things, right? So it all we can always kind of go back to the larger structural realities that kind of 
exacerbate and amplify um, the the sort of symptoms of which I think the number you brought up, Duray, in terms of the increase in foster care children um, is reflective of. It also reminds me of uh, another news story around a number of Republican states have moved to ban or, or to, to allow foster care agencies and um, I don't know if it's foster care or adoption agencies to refuse to uh, refuse to allow LGBT couples to adopt children from them. And so, you know, on the one hand, there is this huge demand. There are a lot of kids in foster care who, who need a home, who need a family. There are parents who want to adopt kids, but because of their sexual orientation, they're not able to adopt in states like Texas or in Alabama uh, with certain agencies. And so like that's sort of the, I didn't think about these two sort of in concert, these two trends, but it's definitely something that's happening together and seems to compound the effect. Yeah, so Sam, it's South Dakota uh, signed a law in March, uh, Alabama's governor signed a law in May, and the governor of Texas uh, has a bill in his desk now that it's, what they are saying is that it allows state-funded adoption agencies to turn down prospective parents for, quote, religious reasons, which we know people use to target people for race and for sexual orientation. But Sam, you're right. And the intersection is really interesting here. Uh, B, P? So I, um, some folks might have seen on Twitter, I had the distinct privilege and honor to uh, provide a, a posthumous tribute to Khalif Browder. Um a couple of weeks ago at Riverside Church in New York and got the chance to talk with his brother who accepted the award on Khalif's behalf. Akeem is running for mayor of New York with the Green Party. And one of the things he talked about in his acceptance speech, um, I, I posted my speech and his speech, but one of the things he talked about was the fact that his mother, adop- or rather was a foster care mother to 32 children. Um, and so to Clint's point, right, there are people stepping up every single day. Um, even if they themselves are not living in particularly wealthy circumstances because children need good, clean, solid, loving homes. She adopted many of those children um, a lot, like amongst multiple racial lines, because Akeem and I talked a lot about solidarity amongst black and brown folks, because growing up, his brothers and sisters um, fit all of those spaces and more, which reminds me of the fact that in the general public, we are often discussing um, the opioid ec- epidemic uh, in, a, in a necessarily racialized context in that um, heroin and other drugs ravaged communities of color long before anybody was willing to call it an epidemic to treat it like the healthcare concern and disease that it is. Um, and now that it is affecting white communities, the conversation has shifted. That's a necessary conversation, but we can't forget to uh, remember the human toll of of drug use of um, this disease and of us not treating it like a disease for all children, uh, because irrespective of their racial background, there are children who are um, really struggling under this crisis, whether the crisis is new for their family or their community or not. Um, clearly, systemically, we need to be doing something, as Clint said, about access to good health care and access to strong and loving homes for these children. No, you're right, BP. And I think, you know, both my parents were addicted to drugs and my father raised us and I think about the incredible access to services that he had that allowed us to stay with him uh, and allowed a safety net to form around us uh, and that we should be scaling those things up. And we don't actually spend enough time talking about solutions that would do that, but we should create space for that. 
So Philando Castile was killed by the police of Minnesota, uh, and we just learned that his family received a $3 million settlement, which uh, is not justice because justice would be in Philando being here. And it is uh, also not accountability because the officer was not convicted. Um, And these settlements just keep popping up with cases and we aren't getting any convictions and people are still dying and uh, it's hard to make sense of. Yeah, no, it's true. It is almost like the settlements are uh, used almost instead of accountability at this point. You know, we've had zero convictions uh, of anybody who was killed by police in 2016. Uh, Zero convictions of any officers involved in those cases. Uh, 1,155 people killed that year. Uh, But yet, you know, settlements are are racking up. So this report from uh, Wall Street Journal looked at the 10 largest cities in the country, and they found that over the past five years, they paid out collectively over a billion dollars in police misconduct settlements. Which is an indication that all of these deaths were wrongful, right? So it still continues to boggle the mind that even if these deaths were wrongful, still no one is responsible. Um, which is the indication that I keep getting when, when cases are settled for large sums that clearly amount to um, a massive amounts of money, as you just said, Sam, um, when these cases are settled for large sums, but clearly uh, in the criminal sense, is no finding of wrongdoing, no accountability, no actual justice for families. Um, accountability is critically important. Obviously, we are simultaneously working on issues of prevention because Philando Castile should be alive today. And even the financial payments aren't coming from the, the police department, right? So, you know, the money is coming from the city, which is raising it from taxpayers, uh, only San Francisco, to my knowledge, actually requires that money come out of the police department budget. Um, and oftentimes the officers don't have to pay anything at all. Mm. And it's interesting to think about, we keep saying this word justice and, and Glendo Castillo didn't get justice, which is certainly true. Uh, and part of what I struggle with, I think, sometimes in these moments is someone who thinks a lot about incarceration, but someone who's also deeply committed to um, racial justice and, and making sure that people are held accountable is you know, it's fascinating to, and I, I'm, so many of us see, you know, after these uh, non-indictments come out or these um, non-guilty verdicts come out or these mistrials happen, uh, I get on Twitter and our social media and I see so many people saying that person should be in jail, he should be in jail for the rest of his life, this is injustice, this is wrong. And it's just fascinating, it's a sort of interesting cognitive dissonance because so many of the people who are saying that that cop should be in jail for the rest of their life were a prison abolitionist last week. And and I understand the sort mm. of visceral impulse that leads someone to say, this week there is an injustice that has happened and I am frustrated that that person is not being held accountable and and he should and my and our notion of, of punishment is so limited, our notion of justice is so limited that we can only think of putting somebody in prison for a very, very long time as a way of creating accountability. And I'm part of what I'm trying to push myself to do is to think beyond that in that like even in the cases that uh don't don't go in ways that are aligned with my notion of justice what does it mean for me to think differently about what justice for Philando Castile would look like would it look like justice if that police police officer was put in prison for 20 30 40 50 60 years or the rest of their life I don't know and I don't actually know that that moves us toward the sort of world that we want Mm -hmm. where we're we are thinking of justice in a more restorative context uh, instead of simply a punitive one. And so that's just something that I've been thinking about uh, each time one of these uh, one of these cases come to the come to the fore. 
that's fascinating, especially because I've I've been trying to push myself on the concept of justice and, and even more so freedom. Um, because that day I spoke about Khalif Brada was actually Juneteenth. And so I and that was a day after um there was no conviction in this case. And so I found that dissonance within a similar dissonance within myself of trying to celebrate freedom on a day when I found myself not fully able to grasp it or understand it, um, given the context, given the devastation. Um, and I realized that for me, justice and freedom to my, to my point earlier means prevention, right? It means not actually having to have this conversation in the first place, um, which is why Campaign Zero exists and why we call it what we call it, because we actually believe we can live in a world where the police do not kill people, not kill fewer people, not kill less people, but kill no one. That's the news. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Don't go anywhere. There's more to come. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. Beyonce, Katanji Brown Jackson, the lady who spent 500 days in a cave. Women are all around us. And this Women's History Month, the Crooked Store is celebrating with a pop-up shop featuring favorites from women of color founded companies. For a limited time, the She Commerce pop-up shop has everything from delicious goodies to kids books to candles, all from small companies that we love. It is a great way to support women of color while treating a woman in your own life. Maybe that's yourself to a sweet distraction from the endless horrors that we face every single day. Happy Women's History Month to all. Check out what's in stock at crooked.com slash store for this month only. Now, I tune into my conversation with John King, uh, the former Secretary of Education. So, Secretary King, it is exciting for you to be here. I appreciate you coming to the pod. Thanks. I'm excited to be here. Do people still call you Secretary King? Yes. Will that be... Are we supposed to call you Secretary King forever? That, that's the rule, <laughs> but John is fine. <laughs> awesome. Well, you, before you were at the Department of Education, you were the commissioner in New York State. Mm-hmm. And you not only did schools, but you did what else? Higher education, museums and libraries, licensing of professions. Uh, in New York, the education department plays a very big role in different aspects of um, you know, the educational, institutional environment. So, you know, licensing of nurses, for example, is something that is overseen by the education department. And you were a teacher before? I was. I was a teacher and a principal. And what did you teach? High school social studies. Really? It's great. And civics as well. Were you a high school principal? Uh, middle school principal. What's your favorite yeah. middle school grade? Eighth grade. Really? Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, I also have an eighth grader at home, so maybe okay. I'm particularly <laughs> conscious of, of why eighth grade is fun. But I just think it's kids are sort of coming into their own. They're figuring out who they are. They're, but they're still little kids in a way. You know? I love sixth grade. I was a sixth grade math teacher, and mm-hmm. sixth grade is like mm-hmm. my favorite. Eighth grade, they're like a little too—it's just like a lot. <laughs> the sixth grade is like still magic. Now, did you—were you on a traditional pathway to be a teacher, or were you an alternative certification program? Traditional. I went to uh, Columbia Teachers College and got a master's in teaching social studies and did student teaching and just very, very traditional path. Partly, I, I really wanted to spend a year— focused on preparing for teaching. 
Got it. Now you were in the Obama administration for the last for the last two years of the administration. Mm-hmm. The first year you were I was deputy secretary. And the second year? Then I was secretary. Secretary. Okay. Um it's great to call you you're young. <laughs> You'll be secretary for a long time. Yes. Like that, that, <laughs> that is true. <laughs> um okay, so we are reading about the Department of Education every day now in some way because of DeVos, the new Secretary of Education. Can you help us just understand what's going on? Yeah. Well, you know, she came in with a very different philosophy about the role of government, and I think it reflects the new administration and their philosophy. They um, tend to think government should be very small and that everything should be left to the states and markets. And um, the new secretary, her history was that she was very active in Michigan, where uh, they have a lot of for-profit charters and very low accountability for charters. And so she has a long history of, of sort of believing that markets and choice will solve everything. Uh, I have a very different view. I think there's an important federal role and an important role for accountability and protection of civil rights. Um, but she certainly is working hard to advance her view. Now, let's talk about school choice. Now, when I think about school choice at the basic level, this notion that you don't have to go to your neighborhood bound school, right, that there can be some choice at the basic level and that a part of a choice equation can be vouchers, a part of a choice equation can be um, can be charters. But we know that like performing arts high schools in cities across the country are are the best example, I think, for most people of choice, right? If you if you know or have went to any performing arts high school that probably isn't the school that was closest to your house, you like applied or there was some way that you chose to go there. Can you sort of give a, a vouchers? Are they good? Are they bad? What are vouchers? What's your take? Yeah, in my, in my view, vouchers are bad. They're a distraction, I think, from the work we need to do to strengthen public schools. You know, so there, there are sort of four categories. There's traditional district schools. And within that, there can be choice. There can be magnet schools. There can be schools that have a particular theme or focus. Uh, my kids go to Montgomery County Public Schools. Montgomery County Public Schools has a lot of choice within the traditional district system. Then there's um, public charters that are um, nonprofit. They are focused on outcomes. And where it works well is in a state like Massachusetts. High bar to get a charter, rigorous oversight, a willingness to close schools that are doing a bad job. Um, Then there's another category of charters, for-profit charters. Those are schools that are run by a company that is trying to make a profit on running schools. And, and my own experience seeing that around the country is that that turns out pretty badly for kids. It ends up that the companies are more focused on profits than students. And in New York, when I was state chief there, uh, we actually stopped adding new for-profit charters uh, because it was such a problem. And then the fourth category is vouchers. Now, vouchers is really private schools, the ability for students to use public dollars to go to private schools that are not publicly accountable. And to me, that's uh, that's a mistake. It's a mistake to send public dollars to schools that are private and not accountable to the public. Now, you talk, that makes sense about vouchers. I agree with you. Now, charter schools have gotten a lot of public charters, uh, have gotten a lot of criticism recently. The NAACP had that statement that was against charter schools. Some other groups have come out and, and talked about the, uh, the the discipline that isn't in a way that 
is aligned with like student growth and development. They've talked about sort of other aspects of charter schools that they think are like either inhumane or don't set up kids for success. What's your take on that? Well, I think there's a range. I mean, there, there's all different kinds of charters. There are some that are uh, very focused on a particular theme or mission, like the performing arts example that, that you gave. Uh, there are some that are particularly focused on high-needs kids in low-income communities and trying to make sure they get to college. That was the kind of charter that I was involved in as a school founder. Um, there are schools that are intentionally diverse and are set up to try to attract students from different communities. They may have a Montessori approach or a dual language approach, but they're intended to try to bring together kids from diverse communities. So there's a range. Not all charters are good. There are states that do a better or worse job of ensuring that their charters are high-performing. But when it works well, uh, you can find charters that are getting great outcomes, academic outcomes for high-needs kids that might not otherwise be available to them. And those kids are then able to go on to college at much higher rates and succeed in college. So to me, that's the, that's the potential of charters. It can be a place where uh, there's almost a laboratory for innovative ideas. And then hopefully those innovative ideas are shared between district and charter schools. Some people feel like, though, that the Charter schools distract from focusing on great public education and traditional schools. What's your response to that? Yeah, I really see charters as part of the public education system. It's a kind of public choice, and it's a kind of public accountability because charters are getting more freedom, but in exchange for more accountability. That's when charters are done well. But look, there are a lot of fair critiques, and there are states like Michigan uh, that have done a poor job with charter oversight, and uh, folks are right to criticize that. Now, you, in paraphrasing back, it's uh, so traditional public schools are obviously publicly run and, and public money, and f- a nonprofit charter schools are often, they are also, it's public money and it's public oversight, just a different type of oversight and potentially more layers because they might have like a board that sort of runs a school that is still accountable to some public body. Is that correct? Exactly. There's a charter authorizer, which is a public entity in some states that's through the university system. Some states it's through the state education agency, but there's some oversight body that is that is a public oversight body. Okay, I think that's important to know because some people talk about charter schools as if they're like the Wild Wild West and nobody. They're not accountable to anybody, and they are. They're just accountable to a different set of public uh, public servants in some places. Now, what about uh, in the social justice space? People have also critiqued uh, school closures with this notion that schools are being closed in uh, low-income communities, that they are often uh, closing schools that are like hubs in communities and that closure should not be a part of our either reform strategy or growth strategy or success strategy. How do you, how do you, how do we make sense of school closures? Yeah. Well, there are, there are different kinds of school closures. So, uh, some districts where they've lost a lot of student population have to close schools in order to, to make the finances of the district work. Then there's another category where the closure is part of a sort of a, an improvement strategy for the district. And what we have seen in some places like New York City, uh, 
you know, not not in the recent years, but uh, during the Bloomberg administration, one of the things they did was they went to struggling large high schools and essentially broke them up with replacement schools, new schools with new leadership, particular theme or focus, uh, teachers who were bought into that theme or focus. And the evidence from that effort is that those small schools got better outcomes, better academic outcomes, better graduation rates. Um, so that, to me, is different from uh, a closure strategy that is just kind of a, a almost a, um, well, you gave the example of the Wild West. That's what it feels like in a place like Michigan, where there's kind of poor oversight and an incoherent system where schools pop up and close all over the place. That's, that's, not a, that's not a good strategy. But I do think there are times when a school is struggling. Maybe it's too large. Maybe the culture is sort of deeply broken. There can be a real benefit to creating new schools that create new opportunities for kids. And back to choice before I forget— um, are there places doing choice really well, right? Like at a, as a part of a portfolio strategy. So I've heard people praise Denver, for instance, as a place that has, uh, that has figured out a way to give every single kid an opportunity to go to a high performing school, whether it is a charter school or a traditional public school. And the critiques that people say about charter schools is that, uh, that it already is cherry picking because parents have to be more invested to even go seek out those opportunities. So I know that as a part of the choice, ideal in choice, is that every single kid, regardless of anything else, like has an opportunity to apply to a middle school or a high school. Can you talk about where that's going well or, or what should we be looking for as like the gold standard of making sure everybody gets access to a great school? Yeah, I don't know that any place is doing it perfectly, but I think Denver is making the portfolio model work and they are seeing good academic gains from it and um, – and they're seeing enrollment gains. Folks want to be in the Denver schools, and, and they've got a mix of charter schools and district schools with lots of parent choice. Where where I live in Montgomery County, Maryland, it's all in, within their traditional district system, but there's lots of choice. Parents are able to choose schools that match their kids' interests. My younger daughter is going to go to a, a STEM magnet middle school program next year. My, my older daughter is going to go to a um, communication arts magnet program in a larger high school. So... They're super excited about it because those are things that they're passionate about. And I think parents in Montgomery County feel like they have a good range of choices. It helps with diversity. So it's allowed the schools to attract a diverse student population, which for me as a parent is really important. Um, actually, the Century Foundation did this report on 100 communities around the country that are doing intentionally diverse uh, school choice programs in different forms. Um, Louisville, Kentucky is a place where they had court-ordered desegregation. The court order ended, and the community said, no, no, we want to keep this going. We want to keep a school assignment strategy that allows us to keep diverse schools in our community. Um, so there, there are examples around the country, but again, no place is perfect, and we still don't have Sadly, we don't have an urban community that you can point to and say every school in that community is thriving and, and excelling. And we have work to do to get there. And just so I don't overlook it, can we? Uh, can you explain what a portfolio model is? Yeah. So often a portfolio model is that there's a mix of different school types. So in Denver, you've got charters, and Denver really views the charters as a part of the portfolio of options available to families. You've also got district schools that are uh, – 
focus on a particular theme or a particular vision of what students are going to get, like a dual language school where students might learn both English and Spanish, that kind of thing. Uh, so that's another set of options within the district. Uh, in some portfolio districts, you also have just traditional neighborhood schools that serve the kids from a particular geographic region. And the idea of the portfolio model is that you'll have this range of options. There'll be flexibility for principals around how they design their school, but everyone is ultimately accountable to a public entity for ensuring good results. Got it. Now, you talked about that we don't have yet an urban school district where every school's performing really well, and that is often measured by standardized test scores. Now, there's been a lot of critique about standardized test scores as not being the best measure of our kids' learning, as potentially being culturally biased in a way that disadvantages kids of color and kids from marginalized communities. Um, And we both were teachers, so we have our own experience with tests. What's your response? Like, what is the state of standardized testing? Is there an ideal that we should be working towards? Are we in like a holding pattern and there's something great coming next? Like, what's the what? Yeah, so we have a new federal education law that President Obama signed in December of 2015 called the Every Student Succeeds Act. It's actually a reauthorization of the original Elementary and Secondary Education Act of 1965. It's a civil rights law. And the idea behind this new version is to create flexibility for states to define systems that include test scores. So it matters if kids have basic English and math skills. It matters if they have basic science skills. But not just look at test scores. This this new law gives them the opportunity to look at things like chronic absenteeism or kids missing a lot of school, uh, to look at whether or not kids have access to advanced classes. We know, for example, that there are high schools serving high-needs kids around the country where you can't even take physics or chemistry or algebra too. So states now have the opportunity to say part of our accountability vision is we want a well-rounded education for kids. We want them to have access to advanced science classes, social studies, um, art and music. Uh, The new law gives states the opportunity to look at college indicators. Are students actually going on to college? How are they doing when they get there? Are they going into post-secondary training for a career? Are they succeeding in those careers? And they can weigh that in their accountability system. So there's a real opportunity here, I think, for states to broaden the definition beyond just English and math and high school graduation. Uh, But those things still matter. You still need those English and math skills if you're going to be successful in college or careers. Why are kids doing so poorly, though? People have this idea that the tests are, you know, I think about places like Baltimore, right, where recently there was a news report that uh, there were a set of schools where no kid was proficient on a state exam, right? So how do we how do we get to get to that? Like, how does it get so bad uh, mm-hmm. that kids are underperforming in a way that is uh, so stark? Yeah. Well, you've got a number of factors, and I think this is part of what's hard. There's no sort of single answer, and there's no silver bullet response. I mean, part of what's going on is that kids who need the most support, unfortunately, many of our schools get the least, the least resources in their schools, uh, the least well-prepared teachers, uh, the least effective teachers, uh, the least access to a well-rounded education, things like art and music, um, the least access to advanced coursework. So part of what's happening is an opportunity gap produces an achievement gap. Part of what's happening is kids are dealing with a lot outside of school. You know, sometimes people try to say, well, it's all about what's happening in school or it's all about what's happening outside of school. It's both. So kids who are homeless, kids who are in foster care, kids whose parents are incarcerated, that has an impact on 
their experience of school, those experiences of trauma affect what happens in school. And so my view is that to solve it, we need to tackle those opportunity gaps and we need to tackle the other things that affect kids' lives. And we got to do a better job on early learning. We know lots of kids are already behind in kindergarten. You can go into kindergarten class. I'm sure you've had this experience and see kids who are holding the book upside down because they don't they're, they don't know letters at all. They have no familiarity with how text works because they haven't had those opportunities. We can tackle that with quality pre-K and for four-year-olds and three-year-olds. Uh, there are great programs around the country where nurses visit new parents and help help them uh, prepare to support their kids' mm. development. Um, we could be doing a much better job sort of as a society taking care of our kids. And the reality is if we don't do that, we have no future as a country. Right? Majority of our kids in public school are kids of color. Majority of kids are eligible for free or reduced-price lunch. If we don't educate low-income kids and kids of color well in this country, we have no future. What is the status of the work that is happening at the federal level or in states and cities that you know of now that you are at the Ed Trust Mm -hmm. uh, with making sure that our students with special needs are learning? Yeah. So, you know, the, the, the most promising things are when teachers are really well prepared with particular interventions that are going to well, work well for kids. So we know, for example, that there are particular programs and strategies for dyslexic kids that help them learn to read and access the rest of the curriculum. And unfortunately, affluent kids are much more likely to get teachers who have that training and specialized programs than low-income kids. Uh, there are schools that are uh, learning a lot about how to help students who've been through emotional trauma and that's affecting their health and well-being and their mental health. Uh, but again, the more affluent communities tend to have more of those supports in place. Um, and that's true for students with disabilities. It's true for general ed, too. One of the things we found in the Civil Rights Data Collection survey that we did at the Education Department when I was there We have 1.6 million kids who go to a school where there's a sworn law enforcement officer and no school counselor. So when kids have emotional needs and have, uh, you know, social needs, our response in some of our schools is a law enforcement officer, not a school counselor. What does that say about what we expect for kids? Now, what is happening with... um like what people colloquially call second chance schools or schools with kids who have not been successful in in a range of schools. So they have they are now in alternative schools, schools of sort of last resort that people call them. Can you talk about what that work is? I feel like those students often go overlooked and when we talk about public education sort of broadly, we we I think do a good job talking about general education. We do a moderately okay job talking about kids with special needs. We just sort of wholly don't talk about the kids uh, who are in our alternative schools. Can you help us yeah. think through that? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there are some places that have very promising efforts. In New York City, for example, there are a set of transfer high schools. Some of them actually do a great job getting kids back into education. Often they have flexible schedules so that kids can work while they're in school. And what's the population? What's the yeah. what's the profile of, of these kids in these yeah. types of schools? Yeah. Um, kids who've dropped out, kids who've been involved in the juvenile justice system, and so have missed school, uh, have missed learning opportunities as a result, maybe come back and and for a variety of reasons aren't able to be successful in the school where they were originally assigned, and so they end up at one of these second chance schools. Sometimes it's new moms, uh, kids who've had to leave school because they've had, had a kid. Um, sometimes it's kids who've been 
homeless or they've been in foster care, they've moved around a bunch and school has never worked for them because they've never been uh, consistently in one place. Um, sometimes it's kids who've had to leave home because of conflict in, or trauma in their household. So you've got a range of needs and the schools that are serving these kids the best are schools that are supportive of kids who had those difficult experiences, schools that, you know, are providing more socio-emotional support, more intensive counseling, close relationships with teachers, oftentimes in, in classes where they have a sort of advisory relationship with teachers, so not just academic, but see their teachers as mentors and a source of support. Um, often there are schools where the adults are really focused on prompting kids around how to navigate not just academics, but life. Um, and the, the thing for me is we should do that for all of the kids who are most vulnerable because we end up, if we don't do that, we end up with kids who are much more likely to end up in the criminal justice system, much more, more likely to end up relying on social services. It's sort of penny-wise and pound-foolish not to invest in the kids who are most in need. Well, you know, for many of these kids, it's not about a second chance. They never had a first chance, right, because of what they've gone through in their lives and what adults, sadly, haven't done for them. And so we've got to think about what does it look like to have a school that is about the success of every child, regardless of what challenges they bring with them? And how do we as a society make sure that we don't throw any kids' lives away? Um, you know, even kids who got in trouble. I was a kid who got in trouble. Thank goodness that adults didn't give up on me then. Now, uh, New York City just launched a new pre-K initiative, right? Pre-K for pre-K, mm-hmm. pre-K three, pre-K for all. Yeah, they have now universal pre-K four, and they're going to expand to pre-K three. And why is that a? Is this is this new? Is it special? Is this a big deal? Is it not a big deal? Is this normal? It's a really big deal, and I think really positive. Um, the evidence on early learning is that quality early learning has like a eight to one, nine to one return on every dollar invested. Kids who've had quality early learning are more likely to do well academically. They're more likely to graduate from high school. They're more likely to go on to success after high school. In fact, uh, the Nobel Prize winning economist uh, James Heckman has done a study that shows kids who've had high-quality early learning experiences have better health outcomes in their 30s as a result. I mean, so this investment in early learning just makes a ton of sense. It makes sense based on what we know about brain development. It makes sense based on the evidence that we have from decades of quality programs. Now, it has to be high quality. uh, But if kids have those high-quality learning experiences, and it's both academic and socio-emotional, you know, learning how to share, learning how to cooperate with your peers, um, really the routines of being in a school community, uh, if, if done well, that can make a huge difference in long-term outcomes. Is this not happening across the country? No, only about 40% of kids are in public preschool programs. Four-year-olds. Eligible. Um, no, that's of, so of all four-year-olds, only oh, about wow. 40% are in public programs. So we have a long way to go to get to Why do you univ- think that is? universal access. Well, you know, when you compare us to international competitors, we spend much less. We invest much less in the early years. Um, 
And it's a problem. And I think the politics, though, are shifting on that. You know, even in some states that are typically thought of as very conservative, like Oklahoma, um, where people have seen the evidence of the effectiveness of early learning, uh, there's been a willingness to shift. In Oklahoma, it's the business community that's been really promoting investments in pre-K. Um, during the Obama administration, we put significant resources into pre-K quality and expansion of pre-K seats. Um, unfortunately, that's not a budget priority for the new administration, but I think states are going to keep going with this work. Cities are going to keep going with this work. Now, I um, am currently the, the interim chief of human capital for the school system in, in Baltimore and was the number two in the school system's human capital office in Minneapolis and taught in New York City. Um, I say that because working at the district really changed how I thought about education at scale, right? My classroom was really important to me as a teacher. And then I got to see hundreds of classrooms and then I got to manage at the district level and, and things were just different. I'd love to know before we start talking about this current political moment, what did becoming secretary of education, like how did that change, if at all, the way that you understood mm -hmm. this work? Uh, what were things that you learned that you were like, wow, I didn't know it like this? Like, or, or what were, what was different or what was new? Wow. Well, I mean, it's just such an incredible, privilege to to have the opportunity to to serve in the role and to be a part of President Obama's team. Um, you know, a couple of things. One is, uh, you know, you really, as you spend time traveling across the country as the person responsible for education nationally, you know, you get to talk to a lot of teachers, a lot of students, a lot of parents, and see the range of issues and the range of challenges, you know, the ways this country has failed uh, Native American students, you know, being on um, a Native American uh, reservation, seeing how folks are treated, the resources folks haven't had, the history. Um, that, was that was really powerful. Um, you know, the things that, are, that are sort of were most memorable and most impactful were really conversations with kids and teachers. You know, I went to um, Orlando after the Pulse nightclub shooting and met with a group of LGBT young people just to talk about their experience and uh, mourn with them, really. And hearing what they go through in school, um, the bullying, the abuse that they experience, not just from other kids, but from adults in school, makes the policy work on civil rights enforcement just feel so incredibly urgent, right? Um, I went to uh, St. Paul, Minnesota when uh, Philando Castile was killed, and I went to visit the school where he worked in hmm. St. Paul. I didn't know and, that. Um, yeah, I went, you know, really to to mourn with uh, with the staff and with the parents there, um, and to convey President Obama's concern. And, you know, sitting with those families, hearing about what Philando meant in the school, how beloved he was by the staff, by the students, um, seeing how white folks in that school community, which is pretty diverse, it's a public Montessori school, pretty diverse school community. Um, the white parents were so shocked by what happened. Mm. And then being in a conversation with them and some of the African-American parents and African-American staff and the African-American staff explaining that wasn't shocking in a way for them because they were used to this very difficult relationship with the police. Actually, the principal of the school, um, who is white, 
married an African-American man. And she described how she never had any interaction with the police before she started dating her husband. And then after she started dating her husband, they had lots of interactions with police getting pulled over. And we know that Flander was pulled over more than 40 times, right? right? So that was a very difficult conversation, but it also brought home the ways in which the issues in schools around race and the issues in the criminal justice system around race and the issues in the relationship between police and communities around race, they're all interconnected. You know, one of the white parents took me aside afterwards and said, you know, one of the things I've taken away from this experience is I have to talk with my kids differently about race because in the conversations I've had with my kids, what they understand about race is there once was a problem and then Martin Luther King came (laughs) and then it was all better. And his parents said, you know, now I realize that's wrong and I need to help them understand that we still have a lot of work to do as a society. So those are the moments, you know, that that having this national view and being all over the country. And you've had this experience, right? As an activist, you've had the opportunity to do this. But you just learn so much about both what's great about our country, but also what's hard and what we need to do a better job around. Now, you started talking a little bit about the civil rights work and I've read, and you know this better than I do because you were the Secretary of Education, uh, that DeVos, DeVos seems to have changed uh, or is starting to limit the role of the Civil Rights Office in the Department of Education. Uh, can you talk about what, what that portends for, for kids across the country? I know that that office historically has done some of the most important work around uh, equity, around discipline. Like I, it's that office, if I remember correctly, that led some of the work to make sure that we weren't disproportionately suspending like kindergartners across the country. Okay. And it's probably done work that I don't even know of. Can you talk about sort of what's at stake right now, what the office does? What do we need yeah. to know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the, this is one of the things that worries me the most about how this administration is approaching the education department. The education department, from my perspective, is a civil rights agency. It exists to protect vulnerable students. And the Office for Civil Rights does important civil rights investigations and enforcement around a range of issues. One of the first things the new administration did when they came into office is they revoked guidance that we had put forward to make sure that transgender students were able to feel safe and supported in school. Uh, And that was sort of a first sign of a very different view about the role of the education department. They walked away from protecting kids from the kinds of bullying and harassment um, and denial of fundamental rights. Um, that is kind of the, the essence of civil rights enforcement, right? Then since then, uh, they've announced that they're going to, uh, when they get a civil rights investigation, they're not going to look at any longer uh, automatically at multiple years of evidence. So one of the things that we did in the Office for Civil Rights during the Obama administration was when we had an investigation, we would try to ask not only did something go wrong in this particular incident, but is is there a reason to think there is a pattern here, a pattern of practice around discrimination? And that's an important aspect of the work. You know, I think about a, a case we had where there was a city where we were looking at the underrepresentation of Latino students in STEM programs, science, technology, engineering, math programs in the district. And one of the things we found was, turned out, that the information wasn't going home in Spanish. So <laughs> if your parents spoke Spanish, 
You wouldn't even know to apply to this program, right? So these are systemic questions. They're not just one individual problem. Uh, They're systemic problems. And we were focused on that. They're saying they're going to walk away from doing those kinds of systemic investigations. They're going to leave it up to each individual investigator to decide how to proceed. That strikes me as very dangerous for the kinds of civil rights protection we need from that office. Uh, We did a lot of work around discipline. Uh, And despite that work and some progress on reducing the number of suspensions around the country, we still know that African-American students are four times as likely to be suspended from pre-K. Wow. As white students. This is four-year-olds, right? Um, and the numbers are uh, even higher in K-12. And in some communities, the numbers are dramatically higher. And it's not just boys. Sometimes people think that's about boys of color, and it is most severe with boys of color. But we also know girls of color are disproportionately suspended in many communities, five times, six times, seven times the rate of uh, white female students. So... We should have an office for civil rights that is focused on that because we know those 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 kinds of policies in schools lead to the school to prison pipeline, right? Getting in trouble in school in that way, then you get arrested at school, then you're involved in the criminal justice system, then you're in a juvenile justice facility. Before you know it, that's a path to adult prison, right? And we, we could be doing a much better job making sure that schools are using restorative justice, have strategies to deal with conduct that doesn't involve exclusionary discipline. But if the Office for Civil Rights isn't looking into those cases, students are going to be more at risk. Um, it's, it's, it's really uh, walking away from the fundamental mission of the agency. Now, what about loans? I've heard, and again, you know this better than I do, that there seems to be some rollback on either protecting uh, students from predatory lenders or just uh, ending programs that... Um, that assist with loan forgiveness. What is happening there? Yeah. Well, there's a variety of things. So some of it is in the budget. Uh, the administration has proposed in their budget cutting uh, work study, cutting uh, aid for uh, programs on campuses that help first-generation college students complete college, hmm. um, taking money that's supposed to go to Pell Grants and using it for other purposes. Um, and what are Pell Grants? Pell Grants are the financial aid for low-income students that helps them go to college. So the budget is bad for students, okay. uh, but then there are a number of policy decisions that they've made. Um, loan servicers, these agencies that are hired by the federal government to help people um, navigate their loans, um, need to do a much better job. We've seen real problems where folks don't, don't get the guidance they need about what the best option f- is for them in terms of managing their debt. And we put in place a whole series of new initiatives to try to improve loan servicing. And this administration is walking away it was an example of something you guys put in place that they're walking away from. Yeah, so we we were going to essentially redo the whole loan servicing contract and set up an environment where there was um, a competition among loan servicers based on performance, and they are walking away from that model, and they're going to choose one large company that's going to take over all loan servicing. And is um, loan servicing like so? I pay student loans. Is the student loan company that I pay a loan servicer or is something else a loan? What's a loan servicer? So a loan servicer, their job is to help you manage your loan. So they're supposed to be the ones who, if you you fall behind on payments, they're supposed to help you figure out 
should you get into income driven repayment where you'd be able to I need a loan servicer yeah (laughs) you get a loan sign me up for a loan servicer yeah so income driven repayment is something we did during the administration which allows you to cap the percentage you pay for loans at 10% of your income Right, but you need somebody. You may need somebody to tell you about that I need and somebody. tell you about that option. Right? Uh, if you've been involved in public service, if you've chosen a career in public service, you may be eligible for public service loan forgiveness. Again, the job of the loan servicer is to make sure that you know that you have that option. That may help you reduce your debt. Uh, How do people get a loan servicer? I didn't know about the loan servicers. Yeah. Well, all loans are assigned to a loan servicer, um, but the loan servicers vary a lot in their the quality. quality. Got yeah. It. Got and it. and what we were trying to do was raise the quality. Got it. And they're walking away from that. Now there has been a backlash too about ed reform in general, right? That like for a decade we tried a lot of things. Small schools, tried um like charter schools in a lot of places, chain certification requirements for pathways to teaching. And some people would say that we did all this stuff and like outcomes have only marginally changed, if at all. And they use that to say that this is really an indictment of what we've called like the ed reform movement and that this should be a moment where we reflect and sort of figure out what we do next. What's your take on that? Yeah, I mean, we need to get better faster. That's right. I mean, we've tried different things. We haven't always implemented them as a country as well as we should have. We haven't always stuck with them long enough to see the results. Uh, But we have to keep learning and getting better. We know, for example, that we have lots of evidence now around the the importance of high-quality early learning. So we should invest more there. Uh, We've learned a lot about the importance of kids having a well-rounded educational experience, that you're actually going to be a better reader if you get quality science and social studies experiences. So we should take that lesson and apply it in our schools. We've learned that if schools intervene with kids who are missing a lot of school, kids who are chronically absent, they're missing more than 10% of the school days, if they intervene with them, get them mentors, get them support, address whatever may be the underlying cause of missing school, transportation, issues at home, if they can work with kids on those and get kids in school more, graduation rates go up. And we've seen that those interventions make a difference. Last year, we had the highest graduation rate from high school we have as a con- we've had as a country because of reductions in the dropout rate, particularly for Latino students and African-American students. So we, we see places where we're making progress. We just haven't been good enough at scaling those things. But the thing I worry most about is people saying, well, school doesn't matter. You know, that, that it's issues outside of school. It's what kids have experienced at home. And given that, there's nothing we can do. That, to me, is exactly wrong. And the evidence is very clear that high-needs kids, if given the right supports in school, can do better. can't solve everything, but it can, it can help them do better and have access to opportunity. The evidence proves that, and my own experience proves that. You know, I, I went to school in New York City. I went to New York City public schools. Um, my mom passed away when I was eight, October of my fourth grade year. And I live with my dad, who's really sick with um, undiagnosed Alzheimer's. So home was this place that was scary and unstable and unpredictable. And the one thing that kept me alive through all of that, the reason I'm sitting here, great teachers in New York City public schools, a great teacher in fourth, fifth, sixth grade. He looped with us, which is very unusual in, in New York City Public Schools, PS276 in Canarsie. And he, that teacher, Mr. Osterweil, made school this place where I could be a kid when I couldn't be a kid outside of school. 
We read the New York Times every day. We did productions of Midsummer Night's Dream and Alice in Wonderland. Right? It was this amazing space where I could be hopeful. And, you know, then my father passed away when I was 12. I moved around between family members and schools. And it was always teachers who kept me going, gave me a sense of hope. And so sometimes when I hear people say, well, if there's a bad home situation, you know, what chance does that kid have? Thank goodness that, that folks didn't say that about me. I'm only here today because folks said, no, no, we see hope and possibility and we're going to invest in that in school. And so, yeah, do we need to do more? Do we need to get better? Do we need to be smarter about how we improve schools? Of course, but we can't walk away from public education. We can't walk away from the idea that public education can be the place that creates opportunity for the kids who are most vulnerable. Now, what advice would you give to people who are either frustrated about the current state of public education, don't know what to do, people who are hopeful and don't know what to do, people mm-hmm. who are scared and don't know what to do? Mm-hmm. Uh, wh- what's your advice to, to folks now? Uh, two things, help and organize. And on help, like start with mentoring a young person. Start with um, maybe you're, you're trying to figure out what your career step is. You're a student in college. Think about teaching. We need great teachers, right? Take an action that will make a difference in the life of a young person because the rewards of that, and you know this, you've lived this, right? The rewards of that are immeasurable. Um, so start, you know, don't just admire the problem. Start figuring out where to help. But then, too, we've got to organize. We've got to create the political will to have it be better. You know, the fact that, uh, you know, at the Education Trust, we do a lot of research and analysis of where there are opportunity gaps. We know that in many states, schools serving low-income students are getting $1,000 less per kid, $2,000 less per kid, right? That's about political will. Is there a commitment on the part of the state to invest in the education of every child? Or we know there was a study done last year that showed the impact of implicit bias on teachers' judgment about students With four-year-olds, this was a study that was done at Yale that showed white teachers and black teachers, when they were looking at student behavior, they saw the same behavior from an African-American male student and a white female student as very different, thinking that the African-American male student needed intervention in response to the very same behavior that for a white female student they didn't see as needing intervention. That implicit bias, we've got to organize so that school districts, school boards decide, yeah, we've got to invest in implicit bias work with our teachers. We've got to invest in training teachers on how to work effectively with diverse student populations. We've got to invest in support for our teachers, right? But there's, in too many places, there's not political will. And so that's why we've got to organize. Well, thank you so much for coming. I consider you a friend of the pie. There's a ton of stuff to talk about. So I hope that uh, we can get you back to talk about some more things. Hopefully there's not a lot of stuff is shocking happening with this administration, so we won't have to reflect on that. But I appreciate you coming today. Thanks for the opportunity. Thanks for doing what you're doing with this podcast. It's really, it's fantastic. And I love listening to you and to Brittany. You guys are doing a great job. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Stay tuned. There's more to come. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. 
No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. Beyonce, Katanji Brown-Jackson, the lady who spent 500 days in a cave. Women are all around us. And this Women's History Month, the Crooked Store is celebrating with a pop-up shop featuring favorites from women of color-founded companies. For a limited time, the SheCommerce pop-up shop has everything from delicious goodies to kids' books to candles, all from small companies that we love. It is a great way to support women of color while treating a woman in your own life. Maybe that's yourself to a sweet distraction from the endless horrors that we face every single day. Happy Women's History Month to all. Check out what's in stock at crooked.com slash store for this month only. And now my conversation with Kelly Ward, who leads the nation's work around redistricting. Okay, Kelly, thank you for joining us uh, here on Pod Save the People. Well, let's jump right in. So you're the ED of Democratic Redistricting. Can you talk about uh, the work that you're a part of and, and what's at stake here? Sure. Well, we fundamentally believe that one of the big problems facing our country is the gerrymandering that the Republicans uh, did in 2011 with the um, process of redistricting. As you know, and your listeners, I'm sure know, um, the congressional lines and state legislative lines are redrawn every 10 years. And in the last round of redistricting, the Republicans controlled the line drawing in many, many states, and they used that line drawing to uh, create very gerrymandered districts that locked in a lot of Republicans into safe seats that are unwinnable and minimized the number of Democratic seats around the country. And we believe that fundamentally that gerrymandering is one of the things that's breaking our democracy, where Congress and state legislatures don't reflect the will of the people, that what voters want and what citizens want is not being um, given to them through their democracy and through their democratically elected officials. And even now, with all of the activism and the work that we're seeing um, in the Trump era, you know, Congress is still not doing its job of holding him accountable. And we think that that's directly connected to the safe seats um, that were created because of the gerrymandering. So our organization is really trying to tackle that and trying to unlock the gerrymandering um, between now and the next round of redistricting. And then also in that next round of redistricting in 2021, make sure that we have all the systems in place that are necessary to have that process be very fair and just um, and, and get better lives as a result. Now, Eric Holder, former attorney, U.S. General for Obama and your board chair, has said that the biggest rigged system in America is gerrymandering. What about gerrymandering don't we know? Or like, where is it most an issue or where should we be looking? You know, I've heard a lot lot about it in the news, but only at a surface level. Can you help take us behind the scenes even a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. Well, the the backstory is that redistricting has to happen every 10 years. It's mandated in the Constitution. And the reason for that is because the, the lines of the legislative bodies are supposed to be as equal as possible in population. So every 10 years, the census is done and that redefines where the people live. And then legislators um, have to draw lines to make sure that population is as equal as possible. So that has to happen. It's constitutionally mandated. 
So our country has been redrawing lines, you know, every 10 years, basically since it was founded. Um, the big secret is that gerrymandering has become this, you know, unfair, unequal, undemocratic way of, of conducting that redistricting. And, and that's what doesn't have to happen. You know, we have to do redistricting. We don't have to do gerrymandering, which means we don't have to, you know, draw the lines for partisan gains or draw the lines, um, you know, where we divide communities um, to, to maximize seats and minute for one party and minimize seats for another party. Like it's, you know, that's what's driving the gerrymandering is this goal to, you know, lock in political support for one party over another. And it doesn't have to be that way. You know, a lot, you know, as I said, redistricting has been happening, you know, since the history of our country. But a lot of times what would happen is it was much more driven toward incumbent protection. And, and you know, that's not necessarily good, but that was how it was done um, most of the time in most states for most of the time, you know, prior to 2011. In 2011, the Republicans really took it to the next level and made it a political issue. And they did it in some key states where, you know, because of where the people live in our country, like. 85% of the congressional seats come from less than 20 states. So the Republicans just happen to have control over the redistricting in, in a vast majority of those highly populated states. And that is where the, the problem comes from. So, you know, what, what we're trying to do is really hone in on those areas of the country where the problems are the biggest and try to fix it for the next round. And how do you fix it? Is it is this the at every state legislature? Is this happening at the city level so city councils can do stuff? Like, how, What is the fix? It's a good question. So th this is why we think our model is really innovative because every state is different. So the redistricting process is conducted and executed differently, literally in every state. In, in 36 of the states, the basic process is that the state legislature draws the lines and the governor signs the map. Um, it, it's nuanced even within that in, in most states, but um, in, you know, 36 states, that's basically the process. In some states, there's a commission where the citizens draw the lines. Um, in some states, there's a blend where a legislature draws the lines, but there are constraints put on them by the voters, like in Florida. So the process is different in every state. So how you fix it is also different in every state. And that's the innovation in our model, which is that we're going to customize the work that we do in the state, depending on what's most effective. So, for example, you know, in Ohio, there's a really big effort behind a ballot initiative as the best way to fix the gerrymandering in Ohio, which is one of the worst gerrymandered states in the country. In Pennsylvania, which is another, you know, very badly gerrymandered state, you can't do a, a ballot initiative. And so the most important thing we need to do there is to reelect the governor so that we have a Democratic governor at the table. Um, you know, it, it really varies state by state. And that is, you know, that's our model is to customize the work that we need to do. The thing that's very important for all of us and listeners, your listeners and all of us involved in this work to remember is that 2018 is a really important election year for redistricting because the people who are elected on four-year terms in 2018 are the people who will be in office for the redistricting process, right? So like governors that are elected mm. in 2018, they are governors until 2022, which means when the redistricting happens in 2021, they will be the ones to sign these maps. 
Similarly, you know, state senators or, or other four-year term offices, like this is the year to get people in office who can do right um, in the jury, in the redistricting process. So we are doing a lot of work to elect Democrats. Um, we're really honing in on the redistricting targets to make sure that we can really show people the, you know, the most important races that we need to pay attention to for redistricting. But the work starts now because the elections are now. So you are a part of the leadership at the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee. I've always called it the DCCC until today. Uh, What did you learn from that experience and how does that drive your work? Our goal at the DCCC is to elect Democrats to the House and try to win the House majority back for Democrats, which means we've spent a lot of time in these congressional districts. We've spent a lot of money trying to elect Democrats into these districts. And I can tell you firsthand, they are very broken. The gerrymandering creates a dynamic where the districts are, in some cases, totally out of reach for Democrats. And districts we held, you know, just five or six years ago, we no longer can win. And then there's a whole other set of districts that are just out, just outside of of Democratic reach. And, you know, if we have a big, huge wave in this country, which we might get in 2018, um, then we can win those districts. But for the most part, in a neutral environment, they are just not winnable for Democrats because of the gerrymandering. So problem number one is Congress is broken because the lines are broken um, and, and Democrats can't win them back under current lines in a current environment. Problem number two, and I saw this firsthand, is this this gerrymandering is breaking Congress. It it is the reason that Congress is dysfunctional. When you have a Congress where, you know, Speaker Ryan and before him, Speaker Boehner, wouldn't even put issues like immigration reform and, you know, gun violence prevention and just issues that the vast majority of Americans agree upon. These Republican leaders won't even put it up for a vote. They won't they won't even consider this conversation that Congress is supposed to have on behalf of the country. It's because of the gerrymandering. It's because the politics of Congress are driven by these right wing safe seats, which makes them driven by right wing Tea Party voters, which is what those members care about. And what can everyday people do to get involved? That is an awesome question. I'm super happy to ask that question. Um, you know, as you said, not a lot of people know about this. And it's an it's an issue that we are still trying to understand and explain and really get the word out about how redistricting happens, the problem with gerrymandering, you know, the systems in each state. It is a long education process to make sure that people are engaged and and aware. So a big part of what we're doing right now is awareness. So I would really encourage everyone, you know, go to our website, follow us on Twitter. Um, It's National Democratic Redistricting Committee. uh, And the website is democraticredistricting.com. Um, really would just love to start that process of engaging people. Uh, you know, we're doing events around the country. We're doing house parties. We're doing a lot of work just to keep get the word out and make sure people are informed on this issue. Um, we are also, you know, one of the things that we are going to put out there is the most important electoral you know, elections for redistricting. So we're really going to try to drive activism and try to drive the political work that folks are doing in 2018 into the state legislative seats and the gubernatorial seats and the other down-ballot seats that are really important for redistricting. So keep an eye out for those targets and anything that your listeners are doing to get involved in those elections, to, you know, elect Democrats to run for office. All of that is very helpful and important. we got a chance 
all this grassroots activism into the districts that are most important for redistricting impact. Cool. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for joining today. And uh, I consider you a friend of the pod. Uh, I would love that. I would love that. Thank you for all the great work that you do all the time. And I'd love to keep talking and, um, and I'll definitely keep following all of your work as well. Thanks so much. Well, that's it. Thanks for listening to Pod Save the People. And we'll see you back here next week. Make sure you tell a friend to listen to the pod. Make sure you rate the pod. And see you next week. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home.